Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome heathens, welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be in drink and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's dark enigma, well, we are getting closer and closer to Halloween, my favorite holiday, and today's listener suggestion is right up my alley. So, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game, and as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so pick your poison accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say Egypt? That will be a single shot. And every time I say ancient, that will be a double shot. Alright, now that we have our business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So, don your best mummy costume, grab your oversized onk, take a few pics of those pyramids as we dive deep into today's offering of 10 of the lesser known but extremely terrifying Egyptian gods and goddesses and a bonus of an ancient ghost story. Woohoo! I hope you guys like it because I had a lot of fun doing it. All right. Ah. The cradle of civilization. I have long had a deep fascination for all things ancient Egypt, and I hope that you do too, because Egyptian mythology has a ton of gods and goddesses. Yeah, totally too many of them. Some of them have loomed pretty large in popular culture and the public's imagination, like Ra, Apophis, Anubis, Isis, Bast, Osiris, so on and so forth. But some are a little bit more obscure, but that in no way diminishes just how scary they are. And today, I want to introduce you to 10 
absolutely terrifying Egyptian gods and goddesses that maybe you might not have heard of. You know, unless you're like a professor of ancient Egyptology, in which case I'm going to apologize because I'm going to butcher the Egyptian names pretty damn bad. So, sorry. They're kind of hard to pronounce. (laughs) All right. We are going to start with a goddess, and the goddess's name is Moftet. Moftet was a very early goddess, and she's usually depicted as a cat. By the way, you're going to find out a lot of these are cats, which just proves my point that cats are evil, but that's a whole other ballgame. Anyways, she's usually depicted as a cat who represented protection from venomous animals and justice and execution. When she wasn't a cat, she was a woman with a cat's head and a headdress of scorpion tails or snakes. I'm just saying it. She was a total badass. But she was tied to execution and seeing her around wasn't just because she was trying to rid you of a dangerous snake. No, one of her depictions was as a cat running up to an executioner staff if you were unlucky enough to be an enemy of the pharaoh, you could be decapitated in the afterlife using Mafdet's claw. She's also the goddess that resulted from the Egyptians noticing that cats would drop dead animals at people's feet, you know, as an offering. Which, of course, the Egyptians reasoned meant that there was a cat goddess, which, of course, had to do the same thing. Of course, in Mafdet's case... She deposited the hearts of evildoers at the feet self. What a good little kitty, right? I know you're loving it. All right. Our next one is also a goddess. And this is the goddess Amit, known as the devourer of the dead. And it's another one that you do not want to bump into in the afterlife. To be fair, she wasn't worshipped as much as she was feared. Because if you can't be loved, you should be feared. Amet was a demon composed of the biggest animals that could eat an ancient Egyptian. So, basically a lion, hippopotamus, and crocodile. I'm just going to give you a minute for your lovely little crazy brains to put those three together in any configuration you can think of, because that's the fun of this show. Anyways, she was described as head of a crocodile, front body of a lion, but you know, we got to have the booty. So the back body was of a hippo. I'm <laughs> just saying, if that doesn't explain a lot with the ancient Egyptians, I'm just going to point out that they did have access to hemp. Just saying, they were high. Anyways. But in Egyptian mythology, gaining entrance to the underworld meant getting some important organs removed and put in canopic jars. Because once you died, the god Anubis weighed your heart against the feather of Mat, the goddess of justice and truth. If the heart was heavier than that of the feather, then you were considered impure and, well, Amat would eat you. Thus dooming you to wander as a restless spirit. Yikes. Yeah. I know, I told you these were going to be pretty terrifying. All right. We've got a couple of goddesses, so throw in a god for you guys. So our next one is a god, and his name is Sheshmu. And he was a lesser god of execution, slaughter, blood, and wine. Yeah, I know, wine. I hear you ask it. Yes, wine. Because he was known to remove the heads of wrongdoers and put them into a wine press to make a beverage with a very distinctive taste. 
You know, notes of terror, possibly of copper, I think you'll find. Don't worry, it's a very heady mix. <laughs> I know I'm so good with the bad jokes today. <laughs> Anyways, he served this head wine, and by the way, I'm going to pause for a second and say, did he drink it out of the skulls of his enemies? Because if he did, that's a bonus point. Anyways. He served the head wine to the righteous dead, who probably could have done with a, well, different different drink to welcome them into the afterlife, but okay. And then, of course, you know, I have to wonder, was that head wine served with head cheese? <laughs> I know, even I groaned on that one. It was bad, but I couldn't help myself. I've had a little too much to drink today. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> okay, our next god is probably my favorite one, just for the description alone. I'm just going to say it. It's another god, and his name is Bobby. That's right. B-A-B-I. Bobby. And he is called the Bull of the Baboons. <laughs> I know. I love that, right? Anyways, Bobby has got two things that are going for him. A mighty phallus. Okay. Check. Which was used as the mast of the fairy carrying souls. I'm just going to say, anybody else thinking Pope Mobile but Penis Mobile? <laughs> okay, sorry. And his other tendency was to feast on entrails. So, he's basically a big dick, no, way, no matter which way you look at him. <laughs> okay, he's another underworld-associated deity. And he's either going to be super helpful to your dead self, or, well, not helpful at all. <laughs> Pretty bad. On the one hand, you invoke his name if you want to have successful sex in your afterlife. So, you know, you want to get banged, you say, Bobby! Dangerously unhinged fertility is one of his characteristics. So, because he's an alpha baboon, don't you know, with a never flagging erection. So, <laughs> I'm loving this dude. Anyways. On the other hand, he does kind of live on human entrails and murders on sight. So, you know, you might want to be careful when you call out his name. Okay, moving on. <laughs> we have another goddess. And this goddess is known as Ati. She was a goddess with the head of a wasp and the body of a hippo. Just to make perfectly clear how at odds that she was with the world. Very, very little information about her survives, except for that she was, well, very, very spiteful. And she must have been really spiteful for that little bit of information to have endured so long. And if you want the extra bonus, all I can picture is this big hippo back end with a teeny tiny head of a wasp. Okay, I'm moving on because I do not want to invoke her wrath. I do not need that kind of bad karma. Okay. Our next goddess is the name Satet. Now, this one you may have heard of. Much like every woman, she has two sides, just like the Nile flood that she embodies. She was known as a fertility goddess and offered jars of purifying water. But she was usually depicted as carrying a bow and arrows because along with fertility, her domain was the world of hunting and war. Yeah, I know. She guarded Egypt's southern frontier by shooting the pharaoh's enemies full of arrows. I wonder, is that where we get sex as a weapon from? Possibly? Maybe? Okay. Moving on. We have another cat goddess. I know. 
lots of cats. The Egyptians loved the cats. And this cat goddess is the name of Minit. And she was a war goddess with the requisite aggression and murderous tendencies that apparently all Egyptian gods had. She was a lion-headed goddess and was pretty damn dangerous. She was often depicted as the wife of other war gods like Mentu and Anur, and in some stories, making them a couple, well, that you probably don't want to piss off. Her name could actually mean the slaughterer or the one who sacrifices or she who massacres. I'm just going to say it doesn't really matter which one of those is the most accurate. They're pretty much all names that you want to run away from. Just saying. All right. Another god for you guys. And this time we're talking about the god Mahes. He is the son of the very famous Bast and Ra. Mahes was a god associated with war and weather. Two things that could go very, very wrong. He added to those big things a smaller connection to lotuses. Oh, and knives. Oh, and devouring captives. Because vengeance against enemies is a major feature of the most terrifying of Egyptian gods. So, basically, just not a friendly dude. Sorry. Alright, we have one more cat goddess. Paquette. And she's either a lion or a carousel. Paquette was a regional cat goddess. And she was associated with hunting. And she spent her nights wandering the desert looking for prey. Do not run into anything given the name Night Huntress with Sharp Eye and Pointed Claw in the dark, because that's what her name means. Because guess what? It's probably going to end pretty poorly. Not for her, but for you. Her night wanderings also gave the goddess an association with desert storms, an extra but, of course, terrifying on top of the idea of a giant cat goddess searching for prey in the dark. Now you got to watch out for sandstorms. Yeah. Lastly, we come to our last god, and his name is Amhe. The Egyptian underworld, as you can tell, is a pretty scary place. In addition to Amit and Babi, you could also encounter Ame. He was a man with the head of a vicious hunting dog. Ame compounds that terrifying image by living on a lake of fire. His name? Well, his name means devourer of millions. Whew. And he could only be controlled by Atum, father of the gods. No other god around could stop him from eating you. So, really, again, somebody you probably don't want to bump into on a dark, lonely night, right? Just saying, the Egyptians, they know how to make their gods pretty fucking scary. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Now that we are thoroughly terrified by ancient Egypt... I found one of the oldest ghost stories known to man. And guess what? It's from ancient Egypt. So I hope that this helps you put you into a good Halloweeny mood. That's right. I said Halloweeny. What are you going to do about it? Right. Laugh because it's funny. Okay. Let's just go to the ghost story. <laughs> okay. The best known ghost story from ancient Egypt is simply known as a ghost story. But sometimes it's referenced as Konsimhab and the ghost. The story dates from the late New Kingdom era, which was 1570 to 1069 BCE, and specifically the Ramesside period from 1886 to 1077 BCE. Nobody knows for sure. 
And you want to know why? Well, because this story was found in fragments on a straka, which is basically pottery with some writing on it. My mom calls it destroyed, but okay, they call it pottery. Whatever. Which scholars such as George Posner, somewhere around 1960, and Jurgen von Bacharath in 1992 claim were copies of a much older story from the Middle Kingdom of Egypt that went back to 2040 BCE. This makes sense as the traditional view of the afterlife in Egypt as a paradise was often questioned in texts from that era, such as the lay of the harper or a dispute between a man and his soul. And Konsumab reflects this view in his conversation with the ghost. So, as a summary, a ghost story tells the tale of a high priest of Amun, Konsumab, and his encounter with a restless ghost whose tomb has deteriorated. The story exists on four different shards of pottery, discovered in and around the necropolis of Deir el-Medina near Thebes between 1880 and 1905. These pottery shards today are housed in the museums in Paris, Florence, Vienna, and Turin, because you can't have them in one place, don't you know? And each one of them relates to another section of the story. The conclusion of the tale, unfortunately, has not yet been found. So, it is a story without an ending. But, that's what I love about you guys, because you guys are so talented and so smart. I want you guys to end the story, if you like. Okay. As is the case with ghost stories from around the world, the Konsumab tale operates on two levels, entertainment and cultural education. An audience would have been entertained while at the same time receiving instructions on the importance of honoring the dead by caring for their final resting place, which is always a good thing. Scholars differ on interpreting the text. Some claim it's a first-person narration by a speaker who spends the night in the necropolis at Thebes and encounters an angry spirit. This nameless narrator then goes to the high priest to seek his help, and Konsumab raises the spirit to talk to it. The first-person narrator interpretation rests entirely on one of the early lines. Other scholars, however, claim that it's a third-person narration which tells how Konsumab encountered the spirit in the necropolis and then dedicated himself to helping it find peace. Again, the beginning of the story is very fragmentary, and the conclusion kind of breaks off, so it's understandable how some people see it as an I mentioned at the start and thinks first-person narration. But, as you'll hear, the story makes more sense as a third-person omniscient narration. However, as no first-person narrator makes an appearance after the opening lines, and these lines could in fact be dialogue spoken by Konsumab. So, take it as, it as you will. Some translations, in fact, omit the I in the opening line entirely, attributing them to Konsumab without any effect on the story's cohesion. So it works on both levels. So whichever one you prefer, that's the one it is. How about that? Either way, after two lines which relate some sort of a journey, Konsumab returns to his house and calls on the spirit to come to him and identify himself, promising to help him by building a new sepulcher and providing him with all sorts of good things. It's clear that the high priest is already aware of the spirit's trouble. The ghost appears and says that his name is Nebusmik. 
Kotsamab asks the spirit what is troubling him, and Nebusmek replies that his tomb has fallen and no one now remembers where he is buried, so that proper offerings are no longer brought. Nebusmek says he is exposed to the wintry wind, hungry without food, and fears he may soon cease to exist or, as he puts it, to overflow like the inundation, and be lost because his soul has no home to contain it. Kotsamab sits down next to the spirit and weeps for him in his sad state. The spirit then relates who he was in life, and I quote, When I was alive upon the earth, I was overseer of the treasury of King Mentohoptep, and I was lieutenant of the army, having been at the head of men and nigh to the gods. I went to rest in year 14, during the summer months of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Mentohoptep. He gave me my four canopic jars and my sarcophagus of alabaster, and he had done for me all that is done for one in my position. He laid me to rest in my tomb with its shaft of ten cubits. See, the ground beneath has deteriorated and dropped away. The wind blows there and seizes the tongue. Now, as for your having promised me, I shall have a sepulcher prepared anew for you. I have it four times already that it will be done in accordance with them. But what am I to make of the promises you have just made to me so that all these things may succeed in being executed? End quote. Kotsamab assures the spirit that he will do everything he can for him, saying, Please express to me a fine commission such as it fit to be done for you, and I will surely have it done. But the spirit is not convinced. Nebusmek says, Of what use are the things you would do? Unless a tree is exposed to sunlight, it does not sprout foliage. Meaning that he doesn't expect the priest to be able to provide him with the kind of home he once had, as Kotsamab does not have those kinds of resources. Just as a tree cannot blossom without sunlight, his tomb cannot be rebuilt on promises and goodwill. The priest has assured him already that if he cannot build him a new tomb, he will have five manservants and five maidservants bring him food and water as offerings daily, but the spirit would not be consoled. Nebusmek disappears, but Konsamab doesn't forget what he's promised. He sends men to search for the ruined tomb, and they find it twenty-five cubits distant along the king's causeway at Deir al-Bari, and return to tell their master. Konsamab is pleased with this news and celebrates with the men, and afterwards summons an official to tell him about the project. The story ends with the line, he returned in the evening to sleep in the knee and he. But the rest of the tale is lost. The knee in the line refers to the necropolis at Thebes. But it is thought that Konsamab returns, returns to where he was at the beginning of the story to tell Nebuskmek that he will soon have a new home. Now, the following is Beccarath's translation and was reprinted in W.K. Simpson's The Literature of Ancient Egypt, an anthology of stories, instructions, staley, autobiographies, and poetry. It omits the first-person narrator line from the beginning of the story, Now, while I was looking toward the west, he went up onto the roof, which often appears in translations as the third line. But the text reads as such, and I quote, According to his habit, after the way he had done, he ferried across and reached his house. 
He caused offerings to be prepared, saying, I will provide him with all sorts of good things when I go to the west side. He went up onto the roof, and he invoked the gods of the sky and the gods of the earth, southern, northern, western, and eastern, and the gods of the underworld, saying to them, Send me that august spirit. And so he came and said to him, I am yours, who has come to sleep during the night next to his tomb. Then the high priest of Amun Konsamab said to him, Please tell me your name, your father's name, and your mother's name, that I may offer to them and do for them all that has to be done for those in their position. The august spirit then said to him, Nebusmek is my name, Ankhmen is my father, and Tamsha is my mother. Then the high priest of Amun-Re, king of the gods, Konsamab said to him, Tell me what you want, that I may have it done for you, and I shall have a sepulchre prepared anew for you, and have a coffin, a coffin of gold and sisis wood made for you, and you shall rest therein, and I shall have done for you all that is done for one who is in your position. The august spirit then said to him, No one can be overheated who is exposed to wintry wind, hungry without food. It is not my desire to overflow like the inundation. Not seeing my tomb, I would not reach it. There have been made to me promises. Now after he had finished speaking, the high priest of Amun-Re, king of the gods, Konsamab, sat down and wept beside him with a face full of tears. And he addressed the spirit, saying, How badly you fare without eating or drinking, without growing old or becoming young, without seeing sunlight or inhaling northerly breezes. Darkness is in your sight every day. You do not get up early to leave. Then the spirit said to him, When I was alive upon the earth, I was overseer of the treasury of King Mentuhoptep, and I was lieutenant of the army, having been at the head of men and nigh to the gods. I went to rest in year fourteen, during the summer months, of the king of upper and lower Egypt, Mentuhoptep. He gave me my four canopic jars and my sarcophagus of alabaster, and he had done for me all that is done for one in my position. He laid me to rest in my tomb with its shaft of ten cubits. See, the ground beneath has deteriorated and dropped away. The wind blows there and seizes the tongue. Now as for your having promised me, I shall have a sepulchre prepared anew for you. I have it four times already that it will be done in accordance with them. But what am I to make of the promises you have just made to me, so that all these things may succeed in being executed? Then the high priest of Amun-Re, king of the gods, Konsamab, said to him, Please express to me a fine commission such as fit to be done for you, and I will surely have it done. Or I will simply have five men servants and five maid servants, totaling ten, devoted to you in order to pour libation water for you, and I will have a sack of emmer delivered daily to be offered to you, and also the overseer of offerings shall pour libation water for you. Then the spirit of Nebusmek said to him, Of what use are the things you would do? Unless a tree is exposed to sunlight, it does not sprout foliage. But stone never proceeds to age. It crumbles through. Now here's where it gets a little fun. King Nebefri, where the high priest of Amun-Re, king of the gods, commissioned three men, each one, and he ferried across and went up. The men searched for the tomb near the holy temple of King Nebifri, 
the son of Re, meant to Hoptep. And they found, in it, it being twenty-five cubits distant along the king's causeway at Deir el-Bari. Then they went back down to the river bank, and they returned to the high priest of Amun-Re, king of the gods, Khonsemhab, and found him officiating in the gods' house of the temple of Amun-Re, king of the gods. And he said to them, Hopefully you've returned, having discovered the excellent place for making the name of that spirit called Nebusmek, endure unto eternity. Then the three of them said to him with one voice, We have found the excellent place for making the name of that august spirit endure. And so they sat down in his presence and made holiday. His heart became joyful when they told him, until the same the sun came up from the horizon. Then he summoned the deputy of the estate of Amun Minkau and informed him about his project. He returned in the evening to spend the night in Ni. And that's unfortunately where it ends. I think it's a sweet story. As noted, it is assumed that Konsamab remained true to his world to his word, and the story ended happily for the spirit of Nebismek. Simpson notes that the high priest Konsamab was probably a fictitious character, but that the setting of the necropolis of Thebes would have been familiar to those hearing the story. Placing the tale in a familiar setting and choosing a high priest of Amun as the central character would have made the story more believable and relatable for an ancient Egyptian audience. It would have worked the same way as setting any ghost story in a well-known spooky locale in the present day. Ghosts, however, were not considered spooky in ancient Egypt. However, they were simply a natural part of existence, and one which the Egyptians usually took pains to guard against. The mortuary rituals which honored the dead were intended to make sure no one came back from the afterlife dissatisfied at all. The proper rites surrounding death and burial were important in all ancient societies, and the Egyptians were just no different in this. Since the afterlife was considered simply a continuation of one's life on earth, and as it was hoped that the spirit of the deceased would be judged favorably by the god Osiris and allowed to pass on to that paradise, there was no reason for a spirit to return to earth unless it was troubled. And that trouble often had to do with either improper observance of burial or the destruction or looting of one's tomb. The tomb was considered the house of the spirit, and if one's tomb were forgotten, if the proper rites of remembrance were not observed, the spirit would not have peace. The appearance of a ghost, unless summoned for a particular reason or visiting in a dream, was never considered a good sign in ancient Egypt. Even so, communication with the dead was sometimes sought for counsel in dealing with problems or making important decisions. The dead were thought to be able to communicate with the living through dreams, and certain wise women were consulted as seers to interpret these dreams and foretell the future. According to Egyptologist Rosalie David, these seers operated both within and outside of the temple and funerary cults in efforts to either facilitate a meeting between the living and the dead or interpret a dream concerning the deceased. She writes, and I quote, these approaches included the use of oracles and magic, letters to the dead, dreams, and other forms of divination. End quote. In the case of Konsamab, he chooses to summon the ghost directly and speak to it plainly rather than rely on any intermediary. And as a high priest, he would be expected to be able and willing to do this. 
In this story, the ghost of Nibusmek is not presented as scary, but as a soul in need of help. The story emphasizes the importance of regularly maintaining tombs and remembering and honoring the dead. When Nebusmek appears, he is greeted by Konsumab as a guest with a problem, not a ghost there to haunt, and the high priest shows him all hospitality in agreeing to help him with his situation. The story in its entirety would have been entertaining, but would also have served the purpose of instilling an important cultural value in the listener as it encouraged them to be mindful of and respect those who had passed to the other side. Respect for the dead, as noted, was an important cultural value to the Egyptians, no matter what the social status of the dead person was. But the author of the tale wants to make sure this point comes across, and so makes Nebusmek a lieutenant in the army under the great hero king Mentuhoptet II, who reigned 2061-2010 to BCE, and united Egypt under Theban rule and initiated the period of the Middle Kingdom. Mentuhoptep II is believed to be the king in the story because of his famous tomb at Deir el-Bari, the necropolis featured in the story, and also his enduring fame. Mentuhoptep II's name is often substituted in translations for the name Rahoptep, which appears in line 3 when it's translated and paginated, at the point where the ghost says, When I lived upon the earth, I was overseer of the treasury of King Rahoptep. The ghost goes on to say, however, that he died in year 14 of the reign of Mentuhoptet, which makes no sense, as Rahoptep was the first or second king of the 17th dynasty, while Mentuhoptet reigned long before him as first king of the 11th dynasty. Eh, somebody made a boo-boo. Big surprise. It is thought that the author may have confused the two kings since Rahoptep, according to his stele at Coptus, was also associated with unifying the country under Thebes during the time of Hyksos' occupation of Lower Egypt. It may also have been that at the time of comp- composition, Rahoptep's name was associated with the earlier hero as a kind of second Mentohoptep, and audiences of the time would have understood the illusion. The actual name of the king is not as important as what they what that name would have signified to an audience. Nebusmek was an important man closely associated with a great king, and if his tomb could be allowed to fall into ruin, so could anyone's. The details of the piece all go toward a single end of emphasizing the importance of respect for the dead and continual practice of the rites of remembrance. So I hope this Halloween you will remember those who have passed. Hopefully they won't come to visit you. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of our episode. And I thank you for joining me here today on Renegade Talk Radio. And I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you thought of today's episode. Or hopefully send me an end to that story. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you got an ending for that story, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that's all the time that I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.